Hi, Michael Midas here. Welcome to episode 20 of the Mysterious Bluffs. Wish I could have gotten to you sooner, but something drastic happened that put the podcast on ice. You see, this past summer, I had an out-of-this-world experience at a cabin on the southern edge of the Boreal Forest, which is the last region of woods before the tundra spreads across the north. The forest is a desolate area, an infinite stretch of trees and lakes, towns are scarce, and the folks that populate them are friendly, but rugged from the extremely cold winters. Now, before I detail this story, I want you to know it left me in a dark, unsettling mood, as though I just awoke from an intense dream. Here's what happened. Like so many other businesses, my antique store was closed for the longest time because of the Greenland flu. Except for mandatory holidays, it's always been open. So what could I do to make up for my deflated routine? Mow the lawn twice as often? Randomly call Russians on Skype and ask them to play charades? Or how about investigate a riddle of the past? No, not Egyptian hieroglyphics or Stonehenge. Wrong podcast. Now, I was planning to take a vacation for ages, but never found the perfect reason to until a couple years ago. And it's all because of a strange purchase I made at my antique store. You see, the odd person drops by the store with a so-called antique they want to sell. 99% of the time, I have to say no. I've never been an impulse buyer. It takes research to know the item's value, and a lot of times, the things people bring in are just plain strange. An old guy brought in this 1937 ceramic replica of a golden dart frog, the most poisonous amphibian in South America. This creature sweats out a poison that'll kill a man in 10 minutes. But that doesn't make the frog unattractive. I'd even call it a cutie. It has yellow-brown skin that almost glows, and protruding charcoal eyes that plead for a face-to-face experience with an unwitting admirer. The thing is, the charm of the replica might disarm a guy, and what if that guy went on a jungle trek in Colombia, bumped into the real thing, and picked it up as a souvenir? Death by a sweaty frog. What a humiliating way to lose your life. I'd rather get drunk and fall off the Grand Canyon. Hold it, that doesn't sound right. How about a normal death like everyone else? You're 95 years old and choke on a burger. About the guy with the ceramic poison dart frog, I told him to try the Rattlestake Museum. It's not quite what they're looking for, but they might be impressed with the frog's deadliness. Sometimes, though, on the rarest occasion, the most interesting person will bring a unique, antique, into the store. A few years back, a lady that reminded me of a witch dropped by. She was tiny and thin, her skin was leathery pale, and her straight black hair was presumptuously shiny, as though she was pretending to wear a wig. Her blue eyes almost glowed, and her nose reminded me of a jalapeno pepper. In her hands was a true anomaly, a box made of red oak which was covered with a number of bright paintings. I asked her to place the box on my desk, then I gave the paintings a quick look over. On the lid of the box was a painting of a middle-aged man wearing overalls. 
His right hand was stretched out to the side, and in the palm of his hand lay an orange sun with rays of light bursting in all directions. And there were the sides of the box. On three of them were paintings of a horse pulling a cart, though in each painting the horse was lifting a different leg higher than the others. But on the right side of the box was a galloping stallion, and besides its front hooves, the date and name of the artist were inscribed. 1887 Elroy Luna. I asked the witchy lady what she liked to put in her box. She said jewelry. What kind of jewelry, I asked. She winked at me and said, any old thing made of gold. Who is Elroy Luna, I asked. Well, she almost couldn't stop talking about him. Elroy Luna was an artesian and a farmer who, back in the late 1800s, lived alone on a hundred-acre farm about a two-hour drive east of the mysterious bluffs. He was known for his eye-catching woodcrafts, and he grew tremendously tall crops of corn that reached up to 12 feet tall. He often visited the nearby town of Odessa, where he stopped by the Main Street shops to keep up on local news. Occasionally, he'd bring wooden creations to the shoemaker. The handmade knickknacks were always welcome on the consignment shelf. Elroy's bowls and knife holders sold especially fast. During farming season, he'd ask around town for extra help on his fields. And it didn't take long until folks were offering him names. Over the years, he helped many locals keep food on the table. Unfortunately, Elroy Luna was found shot to death at the young age of 48. On a July morning in 1893, a newlywed couple went to his home to seek work, and on the front porch, they found his body laying face down in a dry pool of blood. Though the killer was never identified, it was rumored the murder was committed to punish Elroy for sorcery. The unusual size of his crops and the occasional sighting of glowing lights above his fields were evidence to some that he was in cahoots with the devil. So I asked the witchy lady what the paintings on the jewelry box meant. She raised her chin proudly and answered that they were out of this world, and the box was an heirloom that was bought at an auction by her great-grandmother. Well, that was a vague change-the-subject non-answer, though I couldn't say if it was purposely given. Irregardless, the witchy lady wasn't under oath, and I didn't have to buy the box. So I pondered the meaning of the paintings on my own. The man in overalls reminded me of a farmer, and that the sun was in his hands meant he was in control of light. What else could be said, other than he was holding a glow-in-the-dark golf ball? Nah, they didn't have them back then. And the horses pulling carts, and the galloping stallion. They all looked stranger than meaningful. In the end, the mystery of the paintings consumed my patience. So I asked myself, how did they wind up on the box instead of the wallpaper in Elroy Luna's house? Well, someone killed him to make sure I'd never find out. I opened the lid of the box. The interior was lined with a thick auburn cloth that, when I touched it, felt kind of velvety, but not quite as cushy as velvet itself. 
And strangely, the material was in mint condition. Right then, I was convinced the jewelry box was a hoax. I looked into the witchy lady's eyes for a sign of deceit, but they were bright beyond belief. Her eyes then bore the glimmer of a flaming match. The glimmer poured into my eyes and lit up the all-believing universe inside. It was improbable the witchy lady was lying. She peeked into the jewelry box and asked, Do you see the key inside? I looked in the box again and saw a silver skeleton key. What is the key open? I asked. The witchy lady smiled disappointedly, as though I should know already. But then she chuckled and said she'd speak if I can't hear the silence for what it's worth. She said the key opened the door of a cabin that was located six hours north near a small town named Latchford. Now the name Latchford sounded familiar, though I couldn't quite place it. And the cabin? Something about it was calling me. So I said, how much for the jewelry box with the key inside? Man, she asked for a hundred bucks when I expected a price three times as high. I offered her 75 and she said, why not? The price seemed too good to be true. The jewelry box might be jinxed. Some folks were probably dead because of it. Seriously, if that was the case, I should have passed it on to my ex-wife Zelda who might trip on a basketball by a flight of stairs. <laughs> Just kidding. So I never put the jewelry box up for sale. Instead, I kept it in the storage room of my antique store on a shelf in a dark corner. Back to almost the present, the summer of 2020, murder hornets were ravishing the countryside. The Greenland flu was sweeping across the world and a Cuban spy drone crash-landed at Gator World in Florida. Nah, just kidding about the Cuban spy drone. It turned out to be a UFO. By the way, the murder hornets didn't scare me, but I picked up a can of bug spray in case they showed up at the country club. No, I don't belong to a country club. Just trying to make myself look good. But the Greenland flu wasn't going away, and I had no idea when my store would open. That's when I remembered the key inside the jewelry box, the key that opened the cabin. On a stormy July evening, I brought the jewelry box home from the store. In my computer den, I laid it on an oak table. But before getting to the key, I looked over the paintings again. The farmer holding the sun, horses pulling carts, and the galloping stallion. They have to mean something real. You know what I mean by real? You're driving down a street and spot a Burger Queen sign. You think all beef patty. That's real, man. You don't question if cow farts are air pollution. I opened the box and gazed at the key inside. The town of Latchford came to mind. I was hit with regret. Latford was the only info I had about the cabin's location. I should've, could've, would've asked the witchy woman for more info, but her smile, man. She smiled at me with a humbling flair as though I should know everything already. All I could ask was, how much for the jewelry box? The key was worth less than a penny full of fountain dreams. 
I picked up the key ready to throw it out the window and watch it cross paths with a lightning bolt and melt into a tiny blob of scrap. But the key warmed up in my hand. It was a comfortable, welcoming warmth. I imagined I was driving on an old highway through a dark forest. I reached a clear patch of land with a cell phone tower on it. Just after the tower, I turned east on a dirt road. Then the vision ended. Frack! I knew where the cabin was. Well, I didn't know exactly where it was, but I'd bet on the location. A cell phone tower near Latchford. After a restless night's sleep, I got up early, dressed for the country, packed up a travel bag and put the skeleton key inside it. In a hurry, I went over to my neighbor's mailbox and left a note and a house key inside it. This is what the note read. Dear Swen and Ebba, Please feed my foot-long clown loach named Buddy until further notice. I'm off to solve a mystery. See you soon, Michael. Soon I was headed north on a highway, burning Swedish rubber. No, I didn't stop by Becky's coffee shop to pick up the Danish waffle and scrambled eggs special. Instead, I ignored my moaning stomach until I stopped at a gas station to fill up, about a couple hours north of the mysterious bluffs. Inside the store, the smell of coffee and fresh donuts reminded me that I was only human. My stomach was emptier than a donut hole. Later that morning, as I continued driving north, a wild thunderstorm was harassing the highway, producing heavy rain and frequent lightning strikes. But slowing down my Volvo wasn't an option. I had a place to go and things to do. That was until I spotted the flashing lights ahead. As I drove closer, it became clear an ambulance, fire truck and police car had just arrived at a crash site. A semi-truck had slid off the highway and flipped on its side. In the relentless downpour, a fireman was leaning a ladder on the bottom end of the truck's cab so he could climb up to the driver's door. It looked pretty bad, so I slowed down a bit. A few miles down the road, the sky cleared into an innocent blue and the highway thinned from four lanes into two. For hours I drove this road, the route winding around silent hills and lakes. The air was so alive it made life seem fake. About three in the afternoon, the Welcome to Latchford sign came into view. The writing was baby blue on a white backdrop. Man, what a revelation! Right then, I knew why the name sounded familiar. Back in 94, my college girlfriend and I broke up on a whim and for no clear reason. Her name was Susan Latchford. Being young and impulsive are obvious reasons that could explain the quick goodbye, but they still don't seem like good answers. We were truly in love. And even if this truth was riddled with naive optimism, the bottom line is I found her attractive. But not for the reasons you'd like a bikini poster at an auto body shop. Susan squiggled a little when she walked, but her face was sweet and round. She was cuter than a tadpole squirming on a lily pad. Her red hair was quaintly tied into a ponytail, 
and yeah, she wore librarian glasses. If anything bugged me about her, well, she wore baggy jogging pants a little often. I couldn't say if she was sleeping in them. But why hadn't I thought of Susan before? The witchy lady mentioned Latchford, and all morning I'd seen destination signs with Latchford written on them. It seemed the welcome sign had shed some paint. Here's the thing, though. Not only did the welcome sign bring me back to Susan, it also triggered my memory of a particular waiter at the restaurant our last date took place. You see, besides the words welcome to Latchford was a cuddly drawing of a black bear standing up with its arms stretched out for a hug. If body language could speak, this friendly creature would be saying, drop by for gas, souvenirs, and empathy. The waiter reminded me of the bear, because the guy was tall and wide, and his face was tough yet good-natured, as though his mama had been pinching his frozen cheeks to soften him up after a minus 20 winter. And he wasn't even our waiter at the restaurant. He was sent after us because Susan and I forgot to pay the bill. No, we didn't eat and run. This is what happened. We were dining at a fancy schmancy burger joint on an August evening that was plagued with thunderstorms and high winds. At the international airport, a few hours earlier, a small passenger jet skidded off the runway during a low-visibility landing two dead and twelve seriously injured. For the first time ever, Susan and I were speaking with hesitance under our breath, and for me, it was hard to tell if we were still meant for each other or that the airplane accident was in everyone's head. Nevertheless, Susan and I bounced career ideas off each other. Yeah, I wanted to be a real estate agent, and she wanted to be an eye doctor, We were two kids thrilled about a world of opportunities. And if that didn't keep an awkward situation at bay, we dreamed about the vacations we'd like to take. I wanted to visit Roswell, and she wanted to see Transylvania. We both agreed on Easter Island. And we chatted about the cars we'd like to drive. She was Volkswagen, and I was Volvo. When dinner was done, she admitted in the sweetest voice that she'd rather be somewhere else. So I put on a courteous smile and suggested our relationship should end on top. We shared the best of times, and saying goodbye right then meant we'd have great memories. So that was it. We even held hands and kissed after Susan cried a little. Shortly afterwards, we rushed out of the restaurant in a blinding daze, barely able to swallow the drastic decision we just made. Whoops, we forgot to pay the burger bill. Outside the building, that bear of a waiter tapped my shoulder from behind and insisted that I pay for the food. So I asked him if the restaurant had a breakup discount. Susan exploded in tears. She stretched her arms around the waiter's husky sides and said, get him out of my sight. He obliged with a crooked glare. Go away, he said, before you have a reason to sue. So I did. A couple months later, I heard they were engaged. Man, that welcome to Latchford sign was the perfect memory storm. 
but I quickly forgot about Susan. Crossing a bridge over a fast-running river, I glanced at the water and spotted a trout jumping into the air to catch a fly. But then, instead of falling back into the river, the trout hovered in midair, unaffected by gravity. I heard a horn honk, so I looked back at the road. My Volvo was halfway in the wrong lane, and a car was approaching. I swerved back on to my side of the road, and the oncoming car stopped, and the lights on its roof began to flash. Frack! It was the cops, and I'd just seen a trout flying in midair. I pulled up besides the car and rolled down my window. But the tall, uniformed man hopped out of his vehicle and stared into my eyes. Don't tell me. You saw a flying fish, he said. I sat frozen, wondering if I'd driven into a trap. Was the cop related to the witchy lady? Did she somehow know I was coming to Latchford and called the cops on me? How about Susan Latchford? Is she the cop's cousin? Officer, I said. A trout jumped out of the river, then ignored gravity. And I haven't had a drink since my ex-wife Zelda ran off with her fitness instructor. The officer nodded disappointedly. Don't give me the ex-wife routine, he said. And if you were drinking, you wouldn't believe you saw a flying fish. You'd say it was the booze. But people see flying fish here all the time. And not aliens. What do you mean, not aliens? I asked. About to tell a story he'd said many times before, the officer huffed out a displeased breath. Huh. Every normal town around these parts get UFO sightings, he said. Folks see objects shaped like saucers, cigars, ice cream cones, you name it. But here in Latchford, the flying fish scare off the aliens. I sighed with relief, grateful the fish hadn't flown exclusively for me. So officer, you won't write me a ticket for being crazy? The cop looked at his watch, then smiled at me. No, he said, just drop by our town for gas, souvenirs, and empathy. He got back in his squad car and drove off. I was left wondering what was stranger, aliens or a cop with a chip on his shoulder about flying fish. I drove into town, a bit wary I might see something odd again. But Main Street Latchford turned out to be wholesomely subduing. A medley of houses and businesses that extended no further than a few blocks. I stopped at a gas station to top up my tank. And also, I figured the clerk would know where I could find a cell phone tower by a side road which led to a mysterious cabin. I would have liked to ask the cop on the bridge for directions, but the flying fish stole our conversation. As I was walking to the store to pay for the gas, a man came out the door. He was kind of chubby, in his 50s, and wearing a camouflage jacket and a graduation cap. I asked if he just graduated, and well, he pouted, then said he'd finished high school 30 years before. But then he smiled and boasted that he'd done so with a 99.6 average. So you're one of the smartest around these parts, I said. I can name all the Roman emperors, he said, slightly blushing. I smiled. What's your name? I asked. Julian Jules, he said. Julian, I suppose that wearing a graduation cap 
ensures that nobody will forget your high school grade average, I said. Julian pouted again. I wish the cap was on my head for that reason, he said, before continuing into a dark story. Just before Julian's graduation ceremony, some nasty prankster spread crazy glue around the rim of his cap while he'd taken it off to scratch his head. But it's been 30 years since anyone laughed about the joke. It stopped being funny the day Julian saw a surgeon about removing the cap and found out the procedure would leave a permanent scar on his forehead. His mother was so angry that she went after the prankster with a shotgun. And well, after a first-degree murder conviction, she died in a jail cell eight years later. Natural causes, they say. Strangely, she died around the same time Julian got a second opinion that plastic surgery could remove the scar. But he decided to leave the cap in place to remind everyone why his mother was dead, because he was a victim of a prankster. At this point in the story, Julian wiped a tear away from his cheek. How do you cut your hair? I asked him. Julian showed me a zipper he'd added to the top of the cap. I gotta admit, his ingenuity was impressive. So impressive that I asked him if he knew of a cell phone tower by a side road that led to a mysterious cabin. Julian gave me an unsettled look, as though I'd asked the wrong question. Yeah, he said, but the road's poorly maintained. Your Swedish muffin wagon would last 20 minutes on it. Man! My Volvo was better than a petty insult. Look, I said, my car was built where the Vikings roamed. It's loaded with four-wheel drive and an eight-cylinder engine. If the road is too rough for the ancestors of truly wild conquerors, we're talking the folks who made human sacrifices. Let me find out for myself. Julian shook his head resentfully, then pointed a finger towards the northern direction of the highway. If you don't make it back, he said, it's your own fault. A police car pulled into the gas station, stopped in front of us, and out hopped the officer I met on the bridge. Gotta go now, Julian said. Then he rushed off. The officer smirked. Did that clown tell you his story, he said to me? About the crazy glue and the graduation cap, I answered. Don't believe anything he says. The cop snapped. He got a 68% average in high school, and he's been working at a fish and tackle store since then. If you know that, I said, then this is a really small town. Can you really name all the Roman emperors? The cop grit his teeth. Anyone can do that, he said. Do you got a minute? Officer, you don't need to prove it, I said. But is Julian so full of it that he'd walk around wearing a graduation cap? The officer shook his head in disappointment. Come on, his mother makes him wear it to remind him that he should have been a doctor or a lawyer. Officer, I said, you know of a cell phone tower with a road besides it that leads to a mysterious cabin? You mean cabins, he said. There's six of them. Well, what's left of them? The officer cleared his throat. <clears throat> By the way, I'm the local historian as well, he said. And there's a story behind the cabins, and I know it so well that I deserve to tell it in an episode on its own. 
thanks for listening to The Mysterious Bluffs, episode 20. 